Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Tony Tai is an attorney, entrepreneur, and software engineer. He founded and serves as CEO, Chief Engineer of Hyperdraft. Hyperdraft, in turn, builds bespoke document automation software for law firms and legal departments. Prior to his legal career, Tony worked as an enterprise software engineer, an M&A venture capital attorney by training. His goal was always to build tech to disrupt the profession. To learn how lawyers practice and how the law is delivered, though, Tony practiced at some of the world's most prestigious law firms, as well as in-house and multiple technology companies. He was recently recognized as a Fast Case 50 honoree and serves as an adjunct professor at USC Gould School of Law. In today's conversation, we talk about why Tony embraces all the boring stuff nobody else wants to do, how a desire to understand how humans think led to his work in machine learning, software, and algorithms, and how hyperdrift is a culmination of every experience he has had. It was an energetic conversation with Tony that I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm here with Tony Tai, who runs Hyperdraft and is one of the most recent awardees of the Fast Case 50 honor. So congratulations on that. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it definitely in uh, in the audience with uh, a lot of really great talent out there. So very grateful for being on that list. It's an impressive list, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's awesome. I mean, I, I know a lot of the people on it and we, uh, we talk all the time. So it's kind of fun to be in that in that cohort. Yeah, that's cool. Well, let's start by talking about Hyperdraft. Give us the elevator speech as to what Hyperdraft does. Yeah, I mean, in, in 15 seconds or less, we do document generation. And the, the twist that we have is we use our customers' documents and turn them into document generators. There's nothing for them to have to learn, like no, no new forms. And we don't push those forms on, like you know, standardized forms on, onto our clients. We use their forms. And so uh, there's, there's very little learning or lift on their end. So yeah, that's what Hyperdraft does right now. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about what led you there. So you spent some time as a software engineer, I understand, before going to law school. Yep. Yep. Enterprise software engineer. When people ask me what I did, I said, if they're super techie, I say ETL, which stands for extract, transform, load processes. If they're layman, then I just tell them like, I do what other engineers refuse to do just because uh, people would pay me to do it. So I did all the boring stuff around enterprise software and database management. Now, your undergrad degree is in political science, which is not really computer science. That's a bit of an eclectic path, isn't it? It is. I mean, poli-sci is what they put on my degree. So we did a focus under poli-sci called Methods and Models, which is like a, more of a concentration on game theory. Because at the time, I was really interested in machine learning. And this is before it was cool and sexy to do machine learning. And one of the leaders in that space was John Nash, in the sense of leveraging game theory to build these neural networks and and to build these different systems for decision making. So I had to petition to jump into that concentration. So it looks like I'm a humanities major, but like, again, you know, of, of the poli-sci majors, the boring stuff nobody else wanted to do. There was like 10 of us doing all the stats and, and programming work uh, on the political science side of things. I, I like to tell people that we were the backbone of really the science behind political science, because otherwise <laughs> it's just it's just humanities, you know? 
Well, as a political science major myself, I have to admit what you what you described sounds a lot more interesting than what uh, than what I did. No, I mean, listen, like, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people haven't brought it up, and I'm glad you did, because it's kind of the same question that I get around people ask me, like, hey, are there any similarities between software development and the practice of law? And I get this, like, I get this question all the time. And I used to explain the same stuff when it came to like poli sci. Like, I love my true to form poli sci classes about politics and, and, and the history of government institutions and organizations making decisions because it informed the way I built out the software that would, you know, help predict human interaction. I think for someone like me who is admittedly not very good at social skills and it's really an acquired uh, skill for myself, like understanding how humans think, like that was really what I went to school trying to extract is like, oh, okay, I'm awkward. So like, how do I understand how people think so I can fit in better? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then, you know, only a nerd comes up with, maybe I write software and algorithms <laughs> to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting way to approach the solution to that problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most people are like, oh, just make friends, Tony. I'm like, that was a lot harder for me back then. <laughs> I don't know how to describe <laughs> that to people. Uh, what led you to law school? So, you know, for a lot of poli-sci students, that's kind of like a natural progression for me. Uh, that I understand, <laughs> but you, you're not your typical poli-sci student either. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> so I don't know if I talked about this ever publicly, so, you know, I, I've told people some of it is is family obligation. I was kind of an idiot or academic idiot uh, my, my entire life. And so to do one nice thing for my mom, I, I figured I'd go and get an advanced degree. But my mom, when I was growing up, would always tell me, like, you can do anything you ever want to do, Tony, as long as it's a doctor or lawyer or some combination of the two. <laughs> so I actually applied for like MD, JD programs. And I like think back, I'm like, thank God I didn't do that. Well, can you imagine? Um, so part, yeah, part of it was, part of it was like family obligation. I wanted to, to do something right from my mom. Sure. And the other half was like, I had been a software developer, run my own business. So I saw the value in having a legal degree because I paid for lawyers and I was frustrated paying for lawyers and talking to legal professionals that didn't really understand my problems. And so admittedly, some of it was um, something I described as like youthful hubris, right? Like I thought I could do it better or at least learn to do it better. And so that's why I went. What is the similarities between the legal profession and software engineering? I've, I've seen you talk a little bit about seeing around corners. Yeah, I mean, to give folks context real fast on the on the seeing around corners thing, I think for both software engineering and, you know, what makes a good legal professional, being able to understand your client's objective, like where they want to go and how to get them there, and then seeing any risks around the corner, that's what a good lawyer does. And that's what a good engineer does is building a pathway to see around corners. And for engineers, it's like whether it's anticipating certain bugs or anticipating what other features a user is going to want down the line. And so that's actually one of our advantages. I was just talking to one of our engineers today and we we laughed because you know a few months ago when we were building stuff that was new, it was really hard, right? We had built from scratch. But because we built it with the eye of adding new features later on, when a client asked for the new feature, it only took us like a fraction of the time it took us to build all that foundation in. So that, that's that's what I mean about seeing around corners. When it comes to the parallels between the law and software, there are so many, you know, when I hear people like lawyers say, oh, I could never do that. Tony, I'm like, do you write a contract? Do you ever write anything that makes internal logical sense? Great. You can write software. It's not that hard. 
And the key thing to understand about both software and the legal field is it is made by people and intended for other people. So that's the way to understand it. It's not like I'm talking to a computer, hoping that that computer talks to itself. Like, no, I'm talking to a computer with this you know, programming language with the intent that that is going to help interface with another user who's a person. For someone like you, Steve, who's like practiced law for so long, I can tell you this and you, like, you'll get the gut reaction, which is, let's say I asked you a question, a legal question, and you had never, never heard this or stumbled across this scenario before. But because of your years of experience, you could intuit what the law might be, right? Mm-hmm. That internal logic, right? When you call it intuition, it's really not intuition. It's, it's intuition defined as pattern recognition. And so for software development, like often I'm, I'm in the same boat where I haven't seen a solution or a problem like this before. But because I have so much experience dealing with patterns, I can intuit what the solution is going to be. So all this internal logic that's built by people for other people, that's the basis for both of those disciplines. And so when you extrapolate on it, it, it is almost exactly the same discipline when you think about it, because it's by people made for people. I've never heard it described that way. That's that's fascinating to me. Is there a risk tolerance difference between the practice and software engineers? I work with software engineers and they seem very risk adverse, but they're also prepared to encounter bugs and fail fast and correct it, which lawyers are not that good at. It's true. It's just the way you frame it up, right? A really good lawyer in my eyes, like a really good lawyer. I've got a mentor that framed it like this, Michael Roster, who I met at USC. Oh, I know Michael. You know Roster? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Michael's like, yeah, one of my closest friends. He he was my mentor in, in, uh, in, in, in law school. He would say, maybe you've heard this phrase before then. He would say, good lawyers ask, what if, what if, what if? Great lawyers follow that question up with saying, so what, so what, so what? And the same thing goes with engineering, man. It's the exact same thing. Good engineers ask, what if, what if, what if? Great engineers ask, okay, so what? Right? And then you architect around it. Similar to the way that you would architect a legal solution. It's exactly the same way. So yeah, no, I I get it. Like working with engineers, one of the things that you learn over time is like engineers are very literal. So if you told them to put a button over there, they'll put a button over there. They might not ask you why, right? If they're more junior or mid-level. Great senior engineers will be like, well, but why? I had one guy, I'll never forget this. There was a mishap. There was a, there was a screw up in the communication of something, of a product spec. And he had one button unlock another button, if you think about it, right? And he showed it to me and I said, why would I have that button unlock another button? Why wouldn't I just press the other button? <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, think about that. Like, <laughs> like, why do I need a button to unlock another button? Like, can I just click the other button? And it's just fascinating because at that point, I, it made me laugh because I'm thinking, oh, you're so literal. When I told you to put a button, you never thought about like, what's the logic behind putting that button there? He never asked that question. He just moved to the next step of, oh, you asked me to do it. Similar to when you ask a, a lawyer to do something. A good lawyer, one that you train up, has to ask the question of why. Even if they're going to follow through with the the instruction, they got to ask themselves, like, why? And if they don't understand why, that's a big issue when you're training uh, juniors. Yeah, the uh, you know, it's interesting. I I work with our R&D tech team at the firm. And getting people to identify the problem you're trying to solve is always challenging, particularly when you're dealing with lawyers, asking them, don't come to us with a solution. We have to ask what are you trying to solve? Why are you trying to solve it? We can figure out the how. You need to help us get to the what you're trying to fix. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. 
So you come out of law school and you work for a number of firms, in-house counsel. I've seen you talk that you, you never had a goal of practicing law for the long term. I suspect each one of your moves were thought out and planned, and you were trying to get something out of each one of the moves. What what experiences were you trying to gain? Yeah, I appreciate that question. And and you, now you'll kind of, since you know roster, you kind of understand a little bit more, right? Like there's there's some strategy behind it. And I, I don't make moves without talking to him. So I had come up with the overarching idea for hyperdraft and what I would build in the legal tech space in law school. So when I went out to practice and find different job opportunities, I wanted it to inform each part of like what I was trying to solve for. And so when I started, you meet any of these kids in, in law school, you'll hear that the major push is always go to a big firm, go to a big firm, go to a big firm. And I needed to know like what a big firm offered that a small firm didn't offer because I had worked at a small boutique firm during, during my law school years. And so the first one was just kind of getting my feet wet, learning the practice, learning to work with others. Second stage, I went in-house and that was really to understand the client. It's one thing to understand the provider side, but it's another thing to understand the consumer side. Like, what is it that they, they need? And I learned a lot from that. And it was less technical. It was more sociological. It was more of that political science background, understanding the bureaucracy, the politics of being in-house and what objectives I was trying to achieve. That actually really helped me if I wanted to go back and practice and in, 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 in private practice. And then I went back to private practice because I didn't feel like my skill set was there yet in terms of managing a book of business as an attorney and what kind of the the main motivators and incentives are. And so I went back to private practice, despite all my friends telling me I was crazy, which if I'm being real with you, a little bit crazy, That that's fine. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll admit to it. But I went back to private practice because that's that last piece I wanted to understand is, hey, there's this set business model. Everybody keeps saying, oh, you know, with technology, you can sell flat rates and all this other jazz. But I, from experience, know that selling business models is not a great position to be in. And so I needed to truly understand where the users and you know customers were going to be and how I can meet them where they are instead of trying to push a new business model on them. And what did you learn from all that that you've applied in hyperdraft? I mean, hyperdraft is this, this like culmination of every experience I've had, frankly, right? And then the way, you know, we talk about building and designing the product, the way I look at product design, it's not for every single product owner, right? Like product owners, not all the time are they the end user. For me, the thought process is I'm going to build a product and release only products that I'm comfortable with using in my own practice. So in this theoretical world, this uh, Tony Tai universe where I start my own law firm, what tools do I need to build practice that is efficient serves my customers well, and that I'm happy living in and, and being a, a legal professional. I think some people ask me this question too, which is like, oh, you know, you, did you hate being a lawyer? No, actually, I like the practice of law. I love the practice of law. I think it's super fun. I wouldn't have traded it for the world. The way that it's practiced, now that's where the rubber hits the road and where I have disagreements with, with current status quo, which is I didn't feel like I was practicing a lot. I felt like I was being a more of a technician. And so that was the same kind of common theme I got in all of my past positions, both in-house and at at big law firms, is I felt more like a technician. I felt like 80% of the time I was doing this technician work. And then 20% of the time I was doing the real work, like negotiating and, you know, interfacing with clients and 
other side's counsel. That's the stuff that matters. That's what creates business opportunities and really adds value to your, your client. The technical work absolutely needs to get done and it needs to be done perfectly or as well as possible. But that's not the part that I think most lawyers enjoy, nor is it the reason why they go to law school, right? Like no one, no one goes to law school saying like, dude, I'm really good at caption pages. You know, like I, that's all, that's all I want to do, right? Nobody does that. So when you clear that off their plate, they're like, dude, I actually get to call my client, see how they're doing, think strategically how to deal with this litigation matter, as opposed to, oh my God, I forgot. I, I messed up this caption page. Like, what do I do? So yeah, as a long-winded answer for saying like, oh, you know, well, what did you learn? I learned a lot and, it, and it's all informed every piece of this product that's currently built and out there and, and, and will continue to be built and, and pushed out there. In a minute, I want to get more detail in terms of the products and the product descriptions that you're offering to the market. But I, I've heard you talk about one of the missions of, sort of picking up what you said, one of the missions of Hyperdraft is to create tools to let people get their lives back, to take off the administrative work, the technical work, the whatever term you want to use to describe it, so that they can be freed up to do personal stuff and get their lives back. It strikes me, does that bump up against the current business model in law firms, which is basically an billable hours driven revenue model, which does not square with efficiencies necessarily or taking work off of people plates? Do you deal with that in terms of the marketing, product development, sales cycle? My take on it is, well, first off, yes, we get pushback on it. Not as much as I thought we would. I thought we were going to get a lot more pushback. But I think there are a few different factors in play for why we don't get the pushback, which is if you look at the business of law, it is fundamentally what, like what I said before, is a practice centered around people. And if you don't have people, as law firms have learned over the past two years here, if you don't have people, enough people to do the work, that work isn't going to get done. So as much business development as you do, that's going to go right out the door because if you don't have the people or the expertise or just, you know, from a volume perspective, can't handle that amount of work, it's as good as gone. Very seldom do you have a business where you can calculate on a pretty consistent basis exactly the maximum number of dollars you can make in any given year because it is directly correlated with the number of people. Number of people, number of workable hours in a day, number of workable hours in a year, multiply it by their billable rate, call it a day, right? Apply some discount rates. So for us, like the benefit that we talk about has to be something that the client already identified, which is sounds like my client doesn't want to pay for the technical stuff. They want to pay for the strategic stuff. Even if it's just an optics perspective, like just an optics and marketing aspect of it, they need to do it in a way that still provides some margin. So oftentimes our clients that, that we talk to that are more prone to purchase our products, it's because they already identified the, the issue, which is clients aren't willing to pay for this. I still need to do the work and I want to be competitive. And that third prong, the competitiveness, that's really what we push aggressively. Because again, like going back to that Tony Tai theoretical universe thing, if I was going to start up a law firm, I needed to be competitive. And so how do I build tools for myself that make me incredibly competitive in the landscape, which is what made us get to the conclusion of, hey, let me build tools that take out the riffraff of the day-to-day work so that you can spend more time with the client. Because at the end of the day, the client values more of that strategic advice and the face time than you toiling away in the background doing all this work. Yeah. And, and so, so, yeah, to, to bring it back to your original question, which is like, do we get pushback on it? Absolutely. We get pushback on the hey, we make less money if 
we build less. Why would we do that? And my response is, if you don't know the answer to that, then I, I can't help you with it. I will tell you what our other clients think about, which is people retention. They don't want to lose their people by working them too hard. And the third aspect of it is being competitive, which is there's only so many aspects you can be competitive in kind of the overall ecosystem. And it's quality, speed, and cost. And so you got to pick some aspects to be competitive in. And our tooling helps with all of that. So just tell us what you need. Has the labor shortage, I don't know how else to describe it, but the challenge in finding people to meet the demand in the, in the business over the last couple of years, I would think that would be an accelerator for your business because it's not like you can just go out and hire. Your description of how you calculate your potential revenue is exactly right, but it also depends on finding quality people. And that's, that's been difficult over the last couple of years to find people in a way that meets the demand. Has that been an accelerant for your business? Because I would think being more efficient with the people you have is an important component of doing business in this environment. Yeah, no, absolutely. It has been. I would say that the bigger firms have been slower to adopt or think outside the box when it comes to that model, save for your, your, your firm, save for Arthur. Many of the other firms kind of just rely on the old models of let me just offer more money and try to hire, which I refer to as bring it back to political science terms, right? Mutually assured destruction. That's, right. that's, a mad, that's, that's mad theory right there. That's a journey nobody wants to, to be the, the, the winner at. But I would say that, yes, no, it absolutely has accelerated it. And I would say from, from our perspective, it's become a necessity for small and mid-sized firms because they can't afford to just throw money at associates and talent. And so they have to figure out how to make this work outside of just human capital. Human capital makes me sound so like like evil villain ish, <laughs> um, but but I mean this is you know these are financial terms. But outside of human capital and being able to lever that up and down, software is a lot easier. And so when you have that fixed price that you can figure out, oh, I can actually if I pay Hyperdraft, they'll help me kind of handle this much volume, and if I pay them to do this much more and help us build out these other products, it helps me handle this much more volume. And around that process is us helping law firms productize their services, right? Like how do they think about their product legal services and how do they sell that and package it to their, their clients? So yeah, it's been accelerant and, and a great opportunity to help educate the industry. So you touched on this a little bit, the idea for Hyperdraft started well before you formally started the company, I gather. So tell me a little bit about the origin story of Hyperdraft. How'd you come to start it? What was the thinking? I'm a skeptic. I know it sounds weird because like you're an entrepreneur, like shouldn't you be delusional and like <laughs> think, uh, you know, you can ride unicorns. <laughs> I thought all entrepreneurs were delusional. Uh, that's the dirty little secret that I'm letting out on your ears is I'm, I'm, I'm not so much. I'm pretty pragmatic. And if you ask Ashley, right, like our, our head of marketing, she'd tell you like something's like very methodical and very conservative, especially on cash, on, on everything. So origin story really comes from I started working at a boutique law firm and I had zero background. I didn't have any family members that I talked to that that were in the legal field. So I, you know, first generation lawyer, you know, nobody that I knew in my network or anything like that. So when I started it, I was confused and skeptical around the tooling because I expected there to be much higher quality tooling because I was spoiled as a software engineer, right? As a software engineer, we build all these tools for ourselves. And then I go into the legal field. I'm thinking, man, they must have the best stuff, right? Like they cost so much per hour. Therefore, wouldn't it make sense that they have the best tooling? And uh, I remember walking in and somebody, I was like, yeah, so how do I do this? And like, well, 
go talk to Joe down the hall. He'll do it for you manually. And Nancy will run the copies for you. I'm like, this sounds, this sounds wrong, right? <laughs> like this doesn't make any sense to me. So you can ask like one of Roster's um, colleagues at, at USC, you know, another mentor of mine, Michael Chaslow. I was in the USC business clinic. I would go to him and just talk to him. And I, and I told him, dude, this makes no sense. Do you realize what we have on the software side that, that lawyers don't have? And so it started at the, at, at, in, in law school, me really being a skeptic and trying to search for stuff. And at the time, Clio had just come out. I think it was pretty brand new. And I was like toying with Clio and trying to get different law firms to adopt Clio. And I had talked to a bunch of other legal tech companies and um, just connected with one again this last week, actually a few days ago. His, his company ended up failing, but we talked about the mission. And I had worked with him at the time just as a, on a consulting basis to tell him, like, these, these are the things that we need. We need you to build this. Please build this. Please build this. And uh, I'm sure you have experience with this, Steve, is like trying to describe all this stuff from your experience, from your practice, from your workflows that are kind of just ingrained that you have to fight the urge to just be like, well, obviously you do it like this, right? And that that word obviously is not so obvious for engineers. Engineers, like you have to write it in a way that a machine can understand. And a machine can only understand basically like a two-year-old's logic. And so it takes a lot of time to build that understanding out. And um, when I first started the company, I thought, I'll just, I'll still be a lawyer. I'll help another company do it. That didn't work. So then it became, okay, fine. If another company can't do it, I will hire engineers to do it for me. So then I just tried to outsource it. Hired an outsourcing company, tried to explain to them. That didn't work either. And I got so frustrated. I'm like, you know what? I will just do the damn thing myself. <laughs> like, I'll just, I'll just code this myself. It'll be faster. And that's, that's the origin story for how Hyperdraft really started, which is like, I did this out of obligation, really, and just frustration, right? Like, I, was, I tried every other route possible. I tried to buy, I tried to rent, I tried to get everybody else to kind of jump on the same boat, and then nobody else would do it. So I'm like, I need this. I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. So how did you go about building a team around it? Yeah, building the team. I actually, I'll tell you. So when I first started the company, I didn't want to be the CEO because I had a lot of clients that were CEOs. And I'm like, that seems really annoying. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like you got to go sell this thing and like talk to investors and stuff. I don't, don't want to do that. I'll do the fun stuff, right? Like I'll, I'll design the product. I'll build the product. I'll be CTO. So when I first started, the idea was I'll just be the engineer and then somebody else will be the face. And so for a while, I just tried to find people with the right, what I thought were the right skills, right? CEOs, you know, business development people, marketing people that had, you know, years of experience, all that stuff. That failed. The first iteration failed. I massive amounts of turnover. They just didn't understand the problem statement. Even if they said they did un- understand the problem statement, they couldn't sell it. And it was no, it was not their fault. The reality is like, I wasn't good enough at the time to help educate them on what they need to do to sell to lawyers. And lawyers were just not receptive to non-lawyers telling them like, this is how you make your life easier. And like, sure, I've heard this before. Yeah, it doesn't work so well, does it? No, it doesn't. So that, I mean, I started with that kind of prototype and I'm like, okay, failed. But thankfully, I can still develop. And so like, that's fine. How about I start taking more of the business facing roles and then pull on ex-attorneys or current attorneys that have a lot of experience and do the opposite, which is teach them the business aspects, because that'll actually be a lot easier. And those people will connect better with the end user, right? The end, end client. So like I met 
Ashley at Goodwin, who you've met, um, and, and you know, one of my favorite people in the world. We started as friends first, and for me to figure out, dude, she's got like this amazing creative brain that is it's such a shame to not utilize and, and encourage the growth of. I met Sean Graney at Goodwin, who's a partner at the time. And I don't know if we talked about this before, but I, I talked to somebody else about it this morning. When I first met Sean, he thought I was a partner, which I laugh about. And I'm like, that's funny. And then he finds out I'm not partner. And he's just he's like, oh, he's just some BS talking senior associate. And then he finds out that I purportedly know how to be an engineer. And he's like, oh, OK, so he's a con man. <laughs> no way. No way. He's an engineer and then decided to go to law school. Like, what type of idiot does that? And he finds out I'm, I actually do those things. And, and he's like, oh, yeah, you're just stupid. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how we became friends. It took some time. And, yeah, we finally became friends when he realized I was an idiot. But, yeah, and then just started, like, you know, assembling a team of people that I trust that understand the legal field that have either interfaced with the legal field, with the legal teams at law firms and in legal departments or in-house working on a finance side. So Edmund Wang, our CFO, I met him when I was in-house. We were liaisons for each of our departments when we went and had meetings. And so we had a long working relationship and dealt with the frustrations in-house around inefficient uh, legal process. It's not just outside counsel that's inefficient. Internal in-house counsel has the same problems around collaboration and defining objectives for legal teams as well. Yeah. So in, in the couple of minutes we've got left, and I don't want to impose too much in your time, give us an example of a tool that Hyperdraft, you gave you gave the 15 second elevator pitch, but give us, dive a little bit deeper. Give us an example of one of your tools. Yeah. People ask like, hey, what does the AI in Hyperdraft stand for? I'm like, well, artificial intelligence. Like, well, where's the AI? I'm just doing doc gen. And I'm like, oh, well, we don't really sell that part of it. But on occasion, it pops up. So I'll give you a, an example of a, a part of the tool. So our AI backgrounds in game theory, machine learning, AI. Our AI comes in when users don't expect it, right? So we had a client recently that asked, hey, we have this first set of documents. And this first set of documents that we get done at the beginning of the deal helps inform the second set of documents. Is there a way? And usually, this is not my youthful hubris. This is my engineering hubris thinking... <laughs> There's a way, right? Before they even have, like, before they even say anything, I'm like, "There's a way." <laughs> Can we ingest that and then using AI? And sometimes clients try to like relate to me. And they're like, "Using NLP, tell me." I'm like, "Okay, that's good enough." Right? I know you know the acronym. It's it's cool, which stands for natural language processing, right? They're like, "Can you use NLP to ingest it for this next stage?" I'm like, "We were already doing that, <laughs> so like we didn't tell you, but yeah, we'll expose it for you so that you can see it." But one of the pieces of the tool that's different from our competitors is we're trying to remove as much friction from blank slate to document to where it needs to be as, as possible. So we leverage AI and NLP to ingest facts and other sets of documents and turn them into responses to our, our actual doc gen and uh, help them uh, generate the documents that much quicker with less human error. Okay, got it. What's the goal for Hyperdraft? What do you, where do you see it in three years, four years, five years? Yeah. So I, I, I try to stay pretty close to the vest with this stuff. But Steve, since you know roster and, and this stays between us and all of your podcast listeners, you know, absolutely. It won't go, uh, won't go beyond that. <laughs> it won't, won't go beyond that. Uh, so thank you. Swear to everybody, everybody listening in. The goal, obviously, like I didn't start a company just to do document generation. That's not the overall vision. 
the overall vision, I'll just kind of describe it broadly, is to be the operating system for lawyers, to build all the tools that a lawyer might need to get from A to B to C to wherever they need to go as with as little friction as possible. So in the next few quarters, you're going to see some product releases from us that kind of iterate on this first stage, which is document generation. And then what are the kind of the natural progressions that happen after that? Those are some of the products that we're releasing. And then over time, I'd love to be the overall operating system for for business units and helping them kind of collaborate in a little bit more of a streamlined and standardized fashion. Well, it sounds like uh, it's an ambitious goal, but it sounds like you got a good start towards it. So congratulations. I appreciate it, Steve. And uh, I want to say thanks for the time and the discussion. I know we've run a little bit over, so I appreciate your indulging us a little bit. But thank you. No, this is great. And again, you know, stays between us. Whatever I just said over the past 45 minutes. <laughs> Won't go beyond uh, us and our listeners. For so, sure. For sure. Fantastic. So. Thanks, Tony. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.